We are in the Gospel of Mark at chapter 11 today. We have come to a place in the text where, unfortunately, during a weekend service, these stories go on long and long and long. Uh, this is a very quick set of days. Uh, from the time Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the Passover meal with his closest friends, things are going to unfold in just a few days. But we're going to look at it, of course, a segment at a time, so it takes much longer to go through the passage. To set the framework, you remember he cleansed the temple complex. And in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, Mark reminds us the chief priests and scribes heard this. They began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. And the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Mark gives us this little injection to say they are now bent on killing him. This is their mission. And as we start unfolding these, again, long over weeks, very quick over time, let me read Kent Hughes, who paints a beautiful picture of the passage we're considering today in chapter 11, 27 and following. Jesus stood on Solomon's porch on the east side of the court of the Gentiles. Amidst a forest of huge Corinthian columns, each raising almost 40 feet into the air, richly ornamented on the roof, forming a colossal veranda that extended several hundred feet north and south. Below the immense porch was the breathtaking Kedron Valley, descending 450 feet below. What a view this would afford the eye to one who had the leisure to stand on the cool stone shade and look across the Kedron or over to the Mount of Olives or the sun-drenched Judean hills. But Jesus had no such time for this leisure he was engaged in terminal conflict. He had entered Jerusalem and was openly proclaimed to be Messiah. He had just cursed a fig tree, symbolic of Israel's rejection of Messiah, and it was found the next day withered. With righteous anger, he had cleansed the temple. And now, on Solomon's porch, surrounded by chief priests, scribes of the law, and elders, in effect, the Sanhedrin, he refused to tell them by what authority he did these things because of their malevolent unbelief. With effortless brilliance, he asked them a counter question which they dare not answer. Jesus had them, and there was nothing they could do about it. He further used the occasion to give them what we call a judgment parable, the parable of the wicked vineyard keepers. This would devastate them. But at the same time, it was gracious. It was a summary of God's love for his people, hope for his people. Yes, his severity, but also the ultimate triumph of God in history. For this parable is a grid for which we all must evaluate our lives. So we're going to look today at this segment in chapter 11, 27 and following, and then the first few verses of chapter 12 which deal essentially with the authority of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is apropos for any time, but right now when you look at our country that is so tossed and turned and divisive over authority. Riots and burnings and uh, breaking things and uh, burning down buildings, so-called peaceful demonstrations, all these movements, it reminds me of the 60s. And it's a time of, of anger and vitriol and fighting back against authority. And these seasons come and go with the decades. And things will change as they always do as long as we're here. But you and I as believers in Christ have a far greater authority. And that's what this passage deals with. 
how do you, how do I respond to the authority of the person and the work of Jesus Christ? Let's jump into the text, verse 27, where they challenge Jesus' authority. They came again to Jerusalem. Don't miss the little transition. They're now fully engaged in the Passover events. And he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him and saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? The religious opposition of the chief priests, the scribes, and Pharisees comprise what we call the Sanhedrin. Think of it as the 70 that they have, have the most political power, the most religious political power on the planet at that time. They controlled Judaism as it was understood. Rome, of course, occupied, but they gave the Jews pretty well free reign to do their religious political influence of the complex. They wanted to kill Jesus. It was patently clear. Jesus has just tossed a temple complex. Jesus just invaded their space and tossed their establishment. And they're livid at him. He overturned their authority, so they're going to come and challenge him, by what authority do you do this? You're not a scribe, you're not an elder, you're not a chief priest, you're not part of the Sanhedrin. What authority? Who gave you the authority to do the things you do? Publicly or politically, the question is loaded. And Jesus is not uh, distracted by his uh, questioners. In fact, in verses 29 and 30, where they challenge his authority, now Jesus is going to put them on the defense. He's going to challenge their authority. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. You answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, this is not evasive on Jesus' part. This is a counter question. This is a rabbinic way of teaching. We know about the Socratic teaching where people, a professor says, well, what would you think about this? Or how would you handle this? Or what would you do with And so that's a good way of teaching. Rabbinics was a counter question. Rabbinics was citing references. You didn't just say, I think, or I believe, or I know this to be true. You had the case law establish why you believe something. So Jesus puts the question back into their quarter. The counter question would be a common rabbinic tool. What is more interesting to me is that Jesus took control of the situation. They come in trying to set him up to kill him, and he takes control of the situation immediately. And as I studied this the past couple of weeks, it struck me, you know, Jesus was never out of control and never lost control. Jesus takes control of these situations, whether it's a demon or a conflict or a group coming after him or they're trying to kill him. He just takes control, but he never loses control. He's never out of control. And for every leader in the room, that's a pretty sobering reminder. He's always in control, but never loses control. He's never out of control. That's convicting to me. How many times does our our emotions bubble up, our temper bubble up, our words bubble out. He was always in control. He never lost control. Well, he, the question in verse 29 is a little cumbersome in English. I will ask you one question. In Greek it reads, I will ask you one word. I will ask you one word. What's the word? Yes or no? I'm going to ask you one word. Was John from heaven or John of man? which is no different 
than what they're asking him. Where did you get your authority? By whose authority are you doing these things, like turning over the temple and disrupting our religious system? Let's talk about John for a minute. You answer me one word. The way it's crafted by Mark's gospel is pretty chilling. Verse 30, the last two words, answer me. It's an imperative command, but more than that, it's preemptory. You tell me, was John of God or man, and I'll tell you where my authority comes from. If they say from heaven, of course, um, there's going to be a bigger problem. If they say from man, they're going to have issues with the population around them. Jesus' answer to them is to say, you're going to have to deny or acknowledge John. Verse 31, they began reasoning among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. Jesus said to them, neither, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's go back a little bit in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, Jesus is identified by the voice of God at John's baptism. John's, uh, Mark's gospel says when John came along, it's not recorded the same way as Matthew 3 records it, but all the synoptists include it. And so John baptizes Jesus, the voice from heaven, the Spirit descends as a dove, identifying the Father, the Spirit, the Son of God. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. This begins the establishment of the authority of Jesus Christ as he comes on the scene. John the Baptist is the, what I call the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet, and he transfers that authority and recognition onto the prophet, Jesus Christ. Now, they reason among themselves. If they say he's from heaven, then they're busted because they didn't follow him. They didn't believe him. They didn't acknowledge him. If they say from men, the crowds are after them. And Josephus, who some of you are, like to read in historians, Josephus uh, wrote a massive tome. It's all public domain now. You can get it on an e-book or PDF on your computer. You don't have to buy the book. It's a tome to read. But Josephus chronicles many of the things that happen uh, during the time of Christ and afterwards. It's a unique document that we have. It's not inerrant. It's got some problems with it. But one of the things Josephus, Mark, points out is John the Baptist's popularity grew exponentially after he was beheaded. Now that doesn't take much imagination because we know an artist, a musician, an artist who's popular while they're alive, when they're dead, they're a whole lot more popular. You know, just to encourage you guys who are artists, you're going to be worth a lot more when you're dead. <laughs> uh, your art form is more important. That's just illustrative of what happened to John. His message was now really important because Herod, let's call him a half-Jew, has him beheaded because of his marriage to Herodias. John calls him out on it, and they cut off his head. Do you think John was from heaven or from man? The population loved him. Don't forget, there's thousands of people in Jerusalem. This is the biggest event. This is, this is Times Square on New Year's Eve. This is crowded with people to go into the old city for Passover, the party, the celebration. Jesus responds to them. They're caught in their own hypocrisy. Verse 33, we don't know. You know, it's tragic when politics wins over theology. We don't know. If we say from God, we'll be in trouble. If we say from man, we'll be in trouble. We don't know. Which, by the way, is another good reminder for all of us. 
to stand for Christ when it's not popular is challenging. It's very hard to have that kind of courage, especially when the world hates you, especially when we worship tolerance and loving one another and can't we all just get along and you don't understand and you need to listen more to these other groups and other people and you need to all, all, the, all the things put on a Christian thinking mind today going, well, maybe that isn't wrong even though the Bible seems to say it is. Maybe that isn't bad even though I've been taught it's bad my entire life. Even though you students going to college, you're going to get pummeled with this. Politics yields to theology or does theology yield to politics? It's hard. He effectively catches them in their own hypocrisy. Verse 33, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You want to answer a simple, legitimate question. Give me one word, God or man. I'm not going to tell you. So he again is in control. At the highest level, this story is about his authority. That's what they're asking. Who are you to think you can come in and disrupt our temple complex? Who do you think you are? I'll be glad to answer that question. You answer me one question. Was John of God or man? We don't know. Then you can't handle my answer. If you can't answer that simple answer, you can't handle my answer. And obviously he knows their hearts. Now the parable is typically taken in a separate setting, but it is the answer to and the admonition toward the Sanhedrin. Look carefully at verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. This isn't the mass group. Certainly other people heard it in the colonnade. But he says he began to speak to them. And to prove Mark's point, or my point, how Mark does it, look at verse 12, the last phrase, for they understood he spoke the parable against them. So Mark doesn't want us to miss. His authority's been challenged. He's in control. He's put them at bay. And he's going to answer them in an unusual way with this parable. Verse 1, chapter 12 of Mark. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. He rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another one, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more, a beloved son. He sent him last to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. The primary audience, again, being the Sanhedrin, this group that's after him, challenging him his authority. The vineyard parable comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The Sanhedrin would know this story inside and out. They would know the illusion that Isaiah gave this parable. They understood the vineyard was Israel. They understood the one who built the vineyard, the wall, was God. And they understood that they were supposed to care for God's vineyard. They understood this completely. This is a little bit over the top, both in Isaiah and, of course, Christ's recollection. This, we would, might, might call it a super place to work 
This wasn't just a typical vineyard out on a hillside. This person had enough wealth to build a well-established vineyard with a wall. Why is the wall important? Just like it was for the city of, of, of uh, Jerusalem, for the worship complex. You have to keep the evil people out and the worshipers in. Keep the worshipers safe inside the walled city. The whole story of Nehemiah and Ezra. The whole story of the rebuilding of the temple complex. The wall is demonstrative of keeping evil at bay and keeping God worshipers safe and inside to worship Him. It works both ways. This picture is God building Israel. I took a wild, crazy group called the Jew and I made them this beautiful vineyard. The tower is illustrative of wealth because you have storage and security with a tower. So this would be like a person coming in, building a business and hiring 500 employees. Those employees don't have the money to build a vineyard or a wall or to take care of it or hire workers. But the vineyard owner had the capital to build all this to offer employment for these people. That's the image. He's trusting this choice vineyard, this business he's built to a handful of of rental vineyard workers. Verses 2 to 5, the owner, God, sends slaves. Each slave is progressively treated worse than the last one. We're meant to see the progression. Of course, the slaves, or the servants, are, uh, are illustrative of prophets. From Hebrews chapter 11, the so-called great hall of faith. Let me just read a couple of verses, verse 36 and following, about the prophets and what they endured. Others experience mockings and scourging. Yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. Can you think about being drawn and quartered and sawn in two? They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. I still think that'd be a great title for a book or a band. Men of whom the world is not worthy. Wandering in the deserts and the mountains and the caves and the holes in the ground. Elijah flees and Ahab and Jezebel are after him. Zechariah is stoned to death at the end of his life. Uh, more recently, John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, the first New Testament prophet, is beheaded because he stood for God's word. That's the life of the prophet. Finally, in verses 6 to 8, the owner sends his beloved son. Please do not miss this. Chapter 1, verse 11, at the baptism, my beloved son. Chapter 9, verse 7, the transfiguration, the voice from God, my beloved son. And now Jesus in the parable says, my beloved son. Don't miss it. The gospel of Mark sets this authority structure from the beginning. John the Baptist fades. Jesus is the Son of God, the beloved Son, the one and only, the monogenes, the one-of-a-kind, unique one. He comes along three times affirmed as the beloved Son of God, the last one. In your text, it says he sent him last. The word in Mark is eschatos, eschatos. It's unique in all the gospel. It's where we get the word eschatology, used many other times in the Bible, but here just once in the gospel of Mark. It obviously means the last one in a series. That's the most basic meaning of the word. But when you look at how the word is used outside the Bible or extra biblically, it means the finest or the best. He sent the very last one, the best one, the finest one, his son. 
Again and again, he sent the prophets. Again and again, he tried to love them. Again and again, he tried to call them to repentance. Again and again, he rebuked them for what they were doing, but it was always with the other hand, welcoming them back if they would repent, and he would care for them. And they disabuse, they beat, they mock, they shame, they kill, they saw them in two, they destroy them. And this picture is of an egregious verse 8. They took him, they killed him, and they threw him. This is the Sanhedrin's treatment of the Christ. Now many want to run to the crucifixion, and it is interesting in some places, but it does break down. Don't push a parable too far is the rule. Um, obviously they're going to kill him in the vineyard and pitch him out, which sort of disqualifies the crucifixion, because crucifixion happened outside the wall, not inside the city. Be that as it may, the picture is still visible. The imagery is that the Jewish leaders rejected the best one. Verse 9, what will the owner do? A rhetorical question. They're going to face God's wrath. Um, some of us like TED Talks and we like stories and some of you listen to podcasts. And In the last decade, maybe a little more, it seems the culture has become, uh, we always overcompensate as people. We worship story. Tell us your story. What's your story? A business has to know their story. You have to know your story. You can write a book, you tell your story. And we use this word so often, we overuse it perhaps. And Jesus certainly taught in stories. We have 38 recorded parables in, in the New Testament. But that's not the only way he taught. But that's what we're, at this particular time in our culture, we're enamored with story. And we want to hear a good storyteller. I like certain storytellers. I love some of the TED Talks. I'm amazed how 25 minutes can evaporate with a really good storyteller. Can I suggest that Jesus Christ was the best storyteller on the planet? Can I suggest that when he spoke, there was no movement in the crowd? Can I suggest James Earl Jones and Morgan Freeman's voices got nothing on Jesus? In my sanctified imagination, when he's telling these stories, everybody is leaning in, rapt attention with their hand cupped over their ear going, I don't want to miss a word of what this guy's saying. Because he's the God-man, for goodness sakes. He's not an actor or a well-polished communicator. He's God. Read your New Testament that way. Read, your New Te read those red letters is the greatest storyteller not telling a story, but the God-man speaking to you. And crane your spiritual ear, bend your spiritual neck, and lean in and listen to him carefully. In Matthew's account of this, he says the people kind of freak out, and they go, may it never be! They're terrified if the vineyard owner comes back. The wrath of God awaits them. Well, Jesus' authority is established in God's Word. Look at verse 10. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, your English Bible has a question mark there. The question mark is not from the quotation of Psalm 118, 22, and 23. The question is, have you not even read the scripture? Make sense? So the quotation stands apart from that question mark. Verse 12, and they came excuse me, and, and they were seeking to seize him, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And they left him and went away. Have you not even read the scripture? This is an incredulous question. I would paraphrase it 
this way. Jesus saying to the, these guys, are you kidding me? Don't you guys know? Now understand, Psalm 118 was a Hallel Psalm. I can't prove this. This is a theory. A Hallel Psalm was sung as they went up to Passover. I can suggest this is a top 40 song that would have been singing around the time of Passover. They would know these words verbatim. They would know Psalm 118, 22, and 23 verbatim. They could probably recite it perfectly. And so Jesus is saying, don't you even know the most basic thing? And he refers to the stone, the stone and the cornerstone. From, uh, from Psalm 118, this Hillel Psalm, we have what's called divine reversal theology. The stone that the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. We sang a medley of songs, wonderful worship this morning about the cornerstone, about the stone of Christ, the rock of our salvation, all these images. I hope you heard them as you sang along with them. I hope you integrated with that. But the cornerstone can mean a number of things. A foundation stone, a cornice piece, a corner that's both elaborate and structurally sound. It doesn't have just one definitive meaning. It does mean it's cohesion of the faith of Jesus Christ. It does mean it's indispensable. It does mean a sure foundation. When we take groups to Israel, we try to go through what's the so-called rabbi's tunnel. It's on the far outer wall of the Herodian complex, not what Solomon built, the Herodian complex much, much later when Herod makes the temple complex huge, and that would be when Christ was on the planet. So this Herodian complex, you walk underground, and there's a stone. I'm not even going to guess the tonnage. I've heard all sorts of crazy numbers. But we have one person stand over here, and one person walk over here, and then the docent tells us the size and dimensions, and they make a lot of guesses. But it's the biggest stone they've uncovered. You can't put a piece of paper along the crevices. It's so precision in the way it's been cut and laid in place. That holds a foundation wall way outside the Herodian complex of a wall that then the temple complex foundation platform is built upon. It's a good picture of a cornerstone. It's not whether that was the cornerstone Jesus had in mind or the psalmist had in mind. It's that the one that's the most important piece of this project, they tossed aside. They missed him. There's an old adage, whether the rock hits the pitcher or the pitcher hits the rock, the pitcher gets hurt. If you fall against the stone, you're going to get hurt. If you come to the stone, you're going to be protected. Whether the rock hits the pitcher or the pitcher hits the rock, the pitcher is the one that's going to get hurt. Well, the adversaries understand he's talking about them. They've rejected him. He rejects them. But he's not just rejecting them, he's going to replace them. I've tossed your temple complex over, literally and metaphorically. I'm going to destroy this temple in three days. What's he referring to? Double entendre. The temple complex and himself. 70 AD, Titus will come in and destroy the whole thing. With boulders and fire, it's amazing what fire can do on the side of a stone wall if it's a big enough fire. It'll implode the wall and break it apart. They don't need all sorts of militia and people. All they do is build fires all over the city wall, and in no time flat, it takes the wall down. So what the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. The magnificent stonework as you go, and even what you see the ruins, you cover your mouth and go, this is amazing. We couldn't. People will say, how can we do this today? Answer, we couldn't do it today. We couldn't afford to do it today. The buildings are unbelievable in antiquity with the stones, the tools that they had. 
The Sanhedrin stood inside the temple complex in their long robes, their long tallit, their long phylacteries, around their arms, the leather phylacteries, on their head, the phylacteries, the tallit shawls on there with the long tassels. They were ornate. They took the places of honor. They were first in line. They were the authority. Jesus says, you're not the authority. You didn't take care of the vineyard. You didn't take care of my people. I'm going to replace you. So, in the culmination of the crucifixion, we have three people. Now, there are many more, probably, but the way the Gospels record it are two key characters, one on each side of Christ at that crucifixion. One, of course, if you're the Son of Man, get yourself and us off this cross. The demanding nature. If you're God, do something about my problem. If you're God, fix this. If you're God, save me. I'm a victim here. If you're God, wine, 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 do something. And the other one says, will you remember me? Not unlike the publican, be merciful to me, the sinner. Unwilling to look up, pounding his breast. It's all humanity. Righteous, religious, zealous, self-absorbed, self-smart, humble, repentant, desperate, needy, admit we're sinners, admit we're totally messed up, and I need help. That gets his heart. This brings his wrath. Isn't it fascinating that the God of the universe loves, but he doesn't care for pride? You and I all have an authority. There's a human authority, and there's a spiritual authority. And he's very interested in how we respond to that authority. You students are going to go off to a fascinating experience of people with authority that you're not going to agree with. And there's lots of ways to navigate it. There's lots of ways to do it poorly. There's one way to do it well. And that's to be humble and follow your Christ no matter what the world tells you. You've never heard it before, but don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let the voices tell you. Just because everybody's protesting and yelling and screaming, they may not be right. They may not be right. It takes courage to say, you know what? I, I think this has precedence. I think this is true. Call me an idiot. It takes a lot of courage. What makes his heart glad? Those who are humble and respond to authority. Those who walk humbly and do justice and love their God. That's what gets his heart. We're all under authority. How are you using the authority you have? And how are you responding to the authority over you? Father in heaven, we do love you. We thank you for your word that is true. Remind us, recalibrate us, call us back, reground us on your word no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what tolerance and temperance and love and all these veiled euphemisms, they probably don't mean what they say they mean. But we know what your word says, we know what your spirit says, and we want to stay close to your people so we keep on track, no matter what the culture says or believes. Because you come with love, but you bring wrath. And may we be those hidden in the love of Christ under the cornerstone. In Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a phenomenal week.